We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go. Episode 506 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, February 13th. 2023, and all I know are two things. Yes, that was holding on James Bradbury, and yes, let the commander's pursuit of Eric the enemy begin. Thank goodness we do not have yet another Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl title. Thank goodness. A salute to the Kansas City Chiefs. Your service is appreciated. A 38 35 win over. The Eagles at State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona in Super Bowl 57 on Sunday evening. A really good Super Bowl. A tremendous battle between two tremendous quarterbacks in the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes and the Eagles, Jalen Hurts. I tell you, the game reminded me of that all-time great quarterback duel between Mahomes and the Buffalo Bills, Josh Allen, in the divisional round of the playoffs last season. That 42-36 overtime classic for the Chiefs over the Bills. Uh, The whining and crying over the holding penalty on Eagles corner James Bradbury late in the fourth quarter of the Chiefs' game-winning drive already are too much. Bradbury himself, late night on Sunday night, admitted that he was guilty of holding. Yes, in case you haven't heard or seen, James Bradbury admitted after the game that he was guilty of holding, and he was. He tugged at the jersey of Chiefs receiver Juju Smith-Schuster. That's a penalty. I can't stand this idea that you call certain things early in games, but you don't call those things late in games if the games are close. No, a penalty is a penalty. The rules are the rules. The rules don't change depending on the time in the game and the score in the game. There isn't some arbitrary standard by which rules change. I'll never understand that line of thinking. I think that is such a soft way of thinking. Oh, you can't call that late in the game. No, actually, you can. <laughs> no, the funny thing is, actually, you can and you should. Sorry, Eagles. And yeah, the Chiefs, a second Super Bowl title in four seasons. Patrick Mahomes is incredible, doing what he did with the injured ankle. And yeah, let the commander's pursuit of Chiefs offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy 
formally begin. Uh, he reportedly is not getting the Indianapolis Colts head coaching job. Eagles offensive coordinator Shane Steichen has emerged as the leading contender for that job. And did you see what ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter tweeted on Super Bowl Sunday morning? Quote, Washington remains interested in hiring Chiefs offensive coordinator Eric Bieniemy as its offensive coordinator and could meet with him this week per sources, end quote. Yeah, let's hope that Washington and Eric Bieniemy meet this week. Let's hope that Washington this week finally does hire itself an offensive coordinator. Interesting, by the way, that Schefter mentioned the commanders, but not the Baltimore Ravens, who Schefter mentioned along with the commanders as contenders for Bieniemy in a tweet just this past Wednesday afternoon. Hello and welcome to this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, speaking of the NFL's coaching carousel, we on Friday morning had quite the reveal. Denver Broncos head coach Sean Payton revealed that potential commanders ownership groups had contacted him about possibly becoming the commander's head coach. Next segment. My reaction to and analysis of quite the whopper from Sean Payton. Boy, if you are the commander's current (laughs) head coach, Ron Rivera, how exactly are you feeling right now? Uh, Additionally, we have even more on the sale of the commanders to discuss. There has been a lot out there in recent days. And so on the way is a special guest, sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic. Uh, Daniel on Friday night had a very significant report that included Philadelphia 76ers managing partner and New Jersey Devils managing partner and potential commander's owner Josh Harris having toured the commander's team facility in Ashburn, Virginia, and included a key point of clarification on the sale. As it turns out that the first round of bidding on the team has not yet taken place, contrary to previous reporting. Uh, What might this mean regarding Amazon founder Jeff Bezos buying the commanders? Uh, We're going to get into all of this and a lot more with Daniel Kaplan coming up. Also on the show, the Capitals, a very mixed weekend for them as they were back from their bye week, a Saturday afternoon, a 2-1 win at the NHL-leading Boston Bruins. But Sunday afternoon in the Caps' annual Super Bowl Sunday afternoon game, a 4-1 loss to the lowly San Jose Sharks at Capital One Arena. Uh, I will talk Wizards. The Wiz on Saturday night had a first half from the heavens. Uh, this in a 127-113 win over the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena. The Wizards in the first half of that game scored 80 points. <laughs> Where did that come from? Uh, and I have an in-depth college basketball segment for you talking Maryland, Georgetown, Virginia, and Virginia Tech. The Terrapins won their 10th consecutive conference home game, a 74-68 win over Penn State at Xfinity Center in College Park, Maryland on Saturday afternoon. The Hoyas fell to 1-14 and in the Big East with an 89-75 loss to number 10 Marquette at Capital One Arena on Saturday afternoon. The number 8 Cavaliers, a controversial 69-62 overtime win over Duke at John Paul Jones Arena in Charlottesville, Virginia on Saturday. Oh, I've got some things to say about the controversy. Uh, And the Hokies, uh, they recorded their first road win of the season, a 93-87 win at Notre Dame on Saturday 
afternoon. Great to have you with us. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of tweets in response to what I'm going to talk about next segment. Sean Payton revealing that potential commanders ownership groups contacted him about possibly becoming the team's head coach on Friday evening tweeted that as soon as the sale of the Commanders happens, Ron Rivera is on as hot of a coaching seat as an NFL head coach can be on. Tweet from Disco about Ron being on a scalding hot seat, as he should be, especially after that debacle of a collapse at the end of the season. A tweet from Maga the Great Gazoo. Okay, Uh, this makes total business sense. If you spend that kind of money, you definitely want your guys in the building. New owners may come in with a total new team management system, including coaches in front office, or the new ownership could evaluate what's on hand and then move forward from there. Tweet from Ernie. Next question is who reached out to Sean Payton? Uh, Yes, I will be addressing that next segment. Uh, Tweet from The Shark. I'd like to think that Ron would use this as motivation, (laughs) but we all know it won't lead to anything. Uh, Tweet from Rambo, and it's completely on Ron for being on that seat. He thinks that it takes five years to win. Other coaches win in a lot less than that. Uh, Tweet from Matt Lucas, I will let you know when the moving trucks arrive at Ron's house. This is imminent. Tweet from Clark McMillan regarding Sean Payton, also commenting on the drastic fall of Washington as an NFL franchise. Yeah, you'll hear those comments as well next segment. Uh, Writes Clark, as bad as this may be for Ron, I'm so grateful people see the franchise as a 1953 Corvette sitting on blocks with no engine, but want the opportunity to try to restore the car to pristine condition. Yep. One day, somehow, some way, the car will be restored to greatness. I do believe that. I have to believe that. Uh, otherwise, what are we doing here, okay? Uh, in the meantime, I also believe, in fact, I know that if you have a case, you should contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611, and when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace treats its clients with respect and dignity and once what is best for the firm's clients, Paulson and Nace will treat you, your family, and your situation with the care and expertise that you deserve. Uh, Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. Heck, this past July, Paulson and Nace won a case for which the United States government must pay nearly one point eight million dollars. Paulson and Nace took on the U.S. government and won. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. So,
So we last week in the lead up to Sunday evening Super Bowl 57 had what is called Radio Row. Uh, Radio Row, the annual gathering of radio shows and podcasts from around the country in the host city, or at the very least near the host city of the Super Bowl. Uh, Shows broadcast from Radio Row to varying extents from the Monday through the Friday of the week leading up to the Super Bowl. The truth is that Radio Row is pretty overrated. You get a lot of the same people going on shows hawking products and often not saying much, but you on Radio Road do get some newsworthy stuff, as we did with the Commanders last week. Uh, Head coach Rod Rivera made the media rounds on Wednesday and made news. Uh, Quarterback Taylor Heineke was on the Pat McAfee show on Thursday afternoon and said some interesting things. And then we had what we had on Friday morning. Denver Broncos head coach Sean Payton, he on Friday morning made quite the reveal. He revealed that potential commander's ownership groups contacted him about possibly becoming the team's head coach. Yeah, a bombshell. This was Sean Payton on Friday morning with Adam Shine on Mad Dog Sports Radio on Sirius XM. Was there ever a thought about going back to New Orleans? That was out there. Yeah. Um, and and look, it, it's a it's it's a trickier one because it, look, it involves someone that that I've hired, Dennis Allen, and and we've worked together on two different stints. Um, but I think in the end, uh, for me, it was looking it was looking really closely at, at, at these teams, and then there was a, you know, there everyone's waiting to see what happens in Washington, and there there was some interest from some potential ownership groups that are going to be bidding on that currently a bid on that team that we're getting ahead of the game saying wow. hey you know if we get awarded this team would you and and so there were a lot of different things that that's play, interesting right? and and that's a place that's had great tradition like when i came into the league adam my first two years were philly of course yeah. my next four years were new york so Giants, you know all about that and then my next three were the cowboys that my whole entire nfl career prior to New Orleans was NFC, NFC East. And what happened to that program? Was that one that made you think a little bit? Listen, that place, my uncle loved the Washington franchise. Last year, we go there to play. And I'm pregame, I'm looking up in the crowd. A third of the fans are Saints fans. And I'm like, what happened to this place? Yeah. That was one of the sad. six that was one of the six pillars. They used to fight for tickets in divorces. I mean, for there's a fifty year wait list <sighs> to get tickets. It's that sad. Was a, that was a special place. It was. So it'll come back. I hope so. All right. There you go. And no doubt that last part with Sean Payton lamenting the drastic fall of Washington as an NFL franchise, quote, what happened to this place? (laughs) And quote, boy, was that something to hear, right? I mean, we all say things like that all of the time, but for a current NFL head coach to say that, that was something. But of course, the headline from that cut that I just played for you was what Sean Payton revealed about having been contacted by potential commanders' ownership groups. Quote, everyone's waiting to see what happens in Washington And there was some interest from some potential ownership groups that are going to be bidding on, that currently have bid on, that team that were getting ahead of the game saying, hey, if we get awarded this team, would you? Dot, dot, dot. End quote. Now, what Sean Payton said actually lines up with multiple items that had come up in recent weeks. Uh, ESPN NFL reporter Diana Rossini on January 24th tweeted regarding Sean Payton becoming an NFL head coach again, quote, I was told 
There is also a team waiting in the wings, watching all of this, and it could make a move if they get their ducks in a row, end quote. I wondered at that time if she might have been talking about the commanders. It sure would seem as if she was. And then we had what Rex Ryan said. ESPN NFL analyst Rex Ryan. He on January 29th on ESPN labeled the commanders as a potential landing spot for Sean Payton and quarterback Tom Brady. Remember that? Uh, Brady at the time was a pending unrestricted free agent for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, He, of course, ultimately announced his retirement. But, you know, we all laughed at Rex Ryan when he said that just because of how out there what he said seemed to be. Sean Payton and Tom Brady to the commanders. Okay. Well, I tell you what, maybe, just maybe, Rex Ryan, maybe, just maybe, sexy Rexy (laughs) knew of what he spoke. Uh, As for who exactly contacted Sean Payton about becoming the commander's head coach. Well, as I talked about on this past Friday's show, episode 505, business journalist Josh Kosman of the New York Post this past Thursday night reported that, quote, efforts to sell the Washington commanders aren't going well, end quote. Uh, He reported that there were just two bidders for the team, Josh Harris and a, quote, mystery buyer, end quote, And Josh Kosman reported that per a source, the bidders, quote, bid $6 billion each, but don't have the money yet, end quote. But if you go by what Josh Kosman reported, there have been just two bidders for the commanders, Philadelphia 76ers managing partner and New Jersey Devils managing partner Josh Harris and this mystery buyer. And Sean Payton on Friday morning said that he had been contacted by, quote, potential ownership groups, end quote of the commanders. He said groups, as in the plural of group. So if there have been just two bidders for the commanders, the groups that contacted Peyton would seem to be the Josh Harris group and this mystery buyer group. Although you do have to wonder if Amazon founder Jeff Bezos contacted Peyton too. Now, speaking of Bezos, it has been reported that he did not submit a bid for the commanders in what has been called the first round of bidding. Well, not so fast. So we, this past Friday night, had multiple reports that Josh Harris has actually toured the commander's facility in Ashburn, Virginia. Among those reports was one from the Washington Post, which also reported that at least one other unnamed prospective buyer of the team has toured its facility. Presumably, uh, that would be the mystery buyer. And also among the reports was one from The Athletic, which made an important point of clarification. The first official round of bids is due in a few weeks. Those initial bids that have been reported were, quote, non-binding indications of interest, end quote, and not technically bids. So it may well be that Jeff Bezos isn't on trying to buy the commanders because the official first round of bidding actually hasn't happened yet. Much more on all of this next segment with our guest, sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic. But back to Sean Payton. So as you may know, uh, the commanders already have a head coach. Uh, His name is Ron Rivera. Uh, He has been Washington's head coach since New Year's Day 2020. And his work over three seasons as Washington head coach has been mixed at best. This reveal from Sean Payton on Friday morning that potential commanders ownership groups contacted him about possibly becoming the team's head coach makes something crystal clear. As soon as the sale of the commanders happens, 
Ron Rivera is on as a hot of a coaching seat as an NFL head coach can be on. We figured that he'd be on the hot seat once new ownership took over. Now we know that he'll be on the hot seat, and the seat will be piping hot. The seat will be white hot because multiple potential ownership groups of the team, heck, perhaps the only two potential ownership groups right now, already contacted a potential replacement for Ron. The timeline of this sale really has saved Ron Rivera from being fired. The sale isn't expected to be completed until at least the NFL's annual league meeting, which is taking place March 26th through the 29th. That still seems to be way too late to fire Ron Rivera and his coaching staff and hire a new head coach and coaching staff. I mean, the NFL's new league year starts on March 15th. So you're going to have Ron conduct the first two weeks of free agency and trades and then fire him and his staff. And of course, Ron isn't just the commander's head coach. He also is the commander's head coach in a coach-centric approach. He presides over player personnel. So firing Ron might also mean cleaning out the front office too. But again, you're going to do that after free agency and the trading period start. Uh, That seems unlikely. So the timing of the sale still appears to have saved Ron Rivera from being fired this offseason. But it certainly appears that if the timing had been just a bit sooner, Ron would have been fired this offseason. And you know what? Who knows? Maybe he still ends up being fired this offseason. You can't take anything off the table entirely. Uh, From the second that the sale of the Commanders is completed, Ron Rivera will be in major trouble as commander's head coach. And if he makes it to week one of the 2023 season, and I guess you now have to say that if, not when, but if, uh, but if he makes it to week one of the 2023 season, you wonder, is Ron being in major trouble as commander's head coach from day one of new ownership going to neuter his power and neuter his effectiveness with players and thus make the team's 2023 season a complete disaster? Or might Ron being in major trouble as commander's head coach from day one of new ownership, rally the players and galvanize the players to play hard for Ron and play well for Ron. But in any event, Don Ron on Friday morning took a big blow with this reveal from Sean Payton. And that brings me to this. Sean Payton should not have said what he said. Now, as someone who hosts a commander's podcast, I'm glad Uh, that Sean said what he said, because it gives us uh, a very interesting item to discuss. But what Sean said only served to embarrass Ron. And Ron doesn't deserve that. Whatever you think about Ron Rivera, he doesn't deserve to be embarrassed, if not humiliated. I mean, what Sean Payton said in a lot of ways was humiliating for Ron Rivera and does potentially lessen his authority with his players. And keep this in mind, what Sean Payton revealed was unsolicited. Adam Shine never asked Sean Payton about the commanders. Sean, on his own, brought up having been contacted by potential commanders ownership groups about possibly becoming the team's head coach. I'm not asking you to play the violin for Ron, but what's right is right. Sean Payton revealing what he revealed did Ron dirty, and Ron doesn't deserve that. Uh, One more thing. And I may be in the minority on this, but I don't think that Sean Payton as commander's head coach would have been some automatic home run. Sean Payton was the New Orleans Saints head coach for 15 seasons, 2006 through 2021 with no 2012 due to the Bounty Gate suspension. 
Uh, Sean, as Saints head coach, had a regular season record of 152 and 89. That works out to a winning percentage of 631. That is outstanding, no doubt. But for 14 of Sean Payton's 15 seasons as Saints head coach, he had the great Drew Brees as the Saints QB1. The Saints, over those 14 seasons, did win a Super Bowl, uh, that for the 2009 season, but the Saints during that span only advanced to two other NFC Championship games, those for the 2006 and 2018 seasons, and the Saints lost both of those NFC Championship games. The Saints, with Peyton Breeze, had a lot of playoff disappointment, a lot of playoff underachievement, and the Saints, with Peyton Breeze, at one point had a Ron Rivera-like three consecutive 7-9 and nine regular seasons, 2014 through 2016. So there is a truth about the Saints with Peyton and Breeze that too often does not get mentioned. And there's this, the track record of NFL head coaches and head coaching stints after those coaches' initial great head coaching stints isn't good. See Mike Ditka with the Saints, see George Seifert with the Carolina Panthers, See Jimmy Johnson with the Miami Dolphins. See Mike Shanahan with the Redskins. And yeah, see Ron Rivera with Washington. Uh, I am in no way convinced that Sean Payton is going to succeed with the Broncos. And so I am in no way convinced that Sean would have succeeded with the Commanders. But how Sean Payton would have done as Commanders head coach in a lot of ways is irrelevant. The point is that Potential commanders, ownership groups contacted Sean about possibly becoming the team's head coach. And that tells you everything about where Ron Rivera will stand with whichever group ends up buying the commanders. Well, if where you stand is in a place in which you're trying to grow your business or practice, consider advertising on the Al Galdi podcast. Uh, podcast advertising is very affordable, uh, much more so than radio and television advertising and podcast advertising works. Email us, see what we can do for you. The email address is the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Well, it had been a mostly quiet last few weeks regarding the sale of the Commanders, but now have come the last few days. Uh, We on Thursday and Friday had a number of reports regarding the sale, including a report on Friday night from The Athletic, which reported that perhaps the leading contender to buy the Commanders, Philadelphia 76ers managing partner and New Jersey Devils managing partner Josh Harris, has toured the Commanders team facility in Ashburn, Virginia, and The Athletic, in that report on Friday night, made an important clarification about the sale of the Commanders. And a man whose work was key in that report is the man who joins me now, sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Kaplan Sports Biz. Hey, Daniel, how are you? I'm great. How are you this morning? Doing well. I appreciate you coming on. So Josh Harris has toured the commander's team facility. Uh, The Washington Post on Friday night reported that at least one other unnamed prospective buyer of the team has toured its facility. Do you view a prospective buyer touring the team facility as significant regarding the likelihood of that prospective buyer buying the team or not necessarily? Well, it certainly shows that buyer is very uh, interested and serious about uh, the, the, the 
the team. Um, and I've, I've heard of buyers, that wasn't necessarily the case here, but a buy, prospective buyers touring stadiums with architects in tow, tow contractors in tow. Uh, so it, this this is not uncommon when there's a serious, significant uh, buyer in, in the mix. Now, it doesn't mean Josh Harris is getting the team because other buyers could potentially or may already have toured the facility. So it, it, it shows Josh Harris is very serious, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's the only one. A couple of practical questions. Do you know when Josh Harris's tour of the Commander's Team facility took place? And do you know who gave him that tour? I don't know who gave it him that tour. Um, I was told that I, I learned after we ran the, the piece that it was probably Tuesday, like this past Tuesday, that he took the tour. Uh, but uh, again, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean he, he's going to buy the team. It just means that he has a, a serious interest in the team. Josh Harris already is the owner of two major pro sports teams, the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. Uh, front office sports this past Thursday afternoon reported that Commander's co-owner and co-CEO Dan Snyder wants at least $7 billion for the team. The New York Post this past Thursday night reported that there have been just two bidders for the team, Josh Harris and a, quote, mystery buyer, end quote, and that per a source, the bidders, quote, bid $6 billion each, but don't have the money yet, end quote. Uh, I know that you're not Josh Harris's financial advisor, but does he have the money to buy a third major pro sports team? I mean, I've heard that too, the, the $7 billion figure, that that's what Snyder wants, whether he gets it, if he doesn't get close to that. Does he hold out and not sell the team? Does the NFL force the issue? But those are all big questions. Uh, Josh Harris probably can't afford $7 billion on his own. He would probably need a, a group of investors. I do know that, you know, at this stage of, uh, of the process, the, these buyers are assembling their groups. So I don't imagine he would be trying to put the full $7 billion on his own, but he would, he would have help. What's your sense of how Josh Harris is viewed as 76ers and Devils owner? Good, bad, mixed? I think it's a mixed review uh, situation. Uh, obviously, the Sixers, their, their travails in terms of the, the process, uh, as, they, as they called it, uh, when they were tanking for several years, was, was quite controversial. Uh, the, the team is six, somewhat, somewhat successful now. They've not made it to the finals. We'll see how they do this year. The Devils have uh, just started playing better recently uh, after a few fallow years. So it, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. I don't think fans are necessarily in love with them. And any time you have an owner who owns multiple teams and is looking to buy other teams, and he has a, an interest in an EPL and English Premier League, team crystal palace anytime you have an owner like that the worry among any fan base is that he or she is stretched thin that their the passions and the priorities are all over the map yeah that certainly is a logical concern uh now your report on friday night also made a very important clarification in the sale of the commanders it has been said that the first round of bidding has already taken place with a deadline of shortly before christmas uh not true the first official round of bids is due in a few weeks. Those initial bids that have been reported were, quote, non-binding indications of interest, end quote, and not technically bids. Uh, as I said, the New York Post this past Thursday night reported that there have been just two bidders for the team. Is the expectation that the official first round of bidding will bring out more bidders, including, say, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos? 
Well, you don't. Ex- you generally don't expect more in the first in the first round of bids than you do at the stage of non binding inter- uh, expressions of interest because there's no. You know, the, I mean, you or I could put in a non-binding expression of interest. There's no penalty uh, if you don't follow through on it. With the first round of bids, generally, as it's typically structured, uh, there is. There's a financial penalty if you don't follow through, if you're chosen. Um, the the fi- financial figure is a little more secure based on probably more research, more, more discovery being done on the on the team. So I wouldn't express uh, expect more bidders, or I should say more prospective buyers in this stage than the last stage, but you'll definitely get, you know, your, your serious, your serious groups in, involved at this stage. And yes, Jeff Be- Bezos, it was a big deal. Was, a big deal was made of the fact that he wasn't involved in that first stage. Well, I think it's a bigger deal if he's not involved in this stage. Do you expect Jeff Bezos to be involved in this stage? Uh, you know, I, I don't have any better information than anyone else on that. Um, unfortunately, Jeff Bezos is not, doesn't return my calls. So, <laughs> uh, um, uh, I, you know, you talk to people in the market, they think he's hovering out there. They think he, he, he you know, whether there's smoke, there's fire. We'll, we'll see. I mean, there's no doubt that if he wants the team, it's his for the taking. The only the question I know a lot of, a lot of the financial sources I have had is how the investment bank that's running the process would handle him coming in after the first or even second round of bids closes and then puts in an offer. Because usually when the investment bank runs a process like this, they 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 put a they put a deadline on the first round of bids that if you don't put a bid in uh, at that time, you can't get in the, into the process. This happened with Chelsea. There's an English bidder who came in last minute with a higher bid and he was rebuffed because it was too late um i don't expect that will happen here i think uh if bezos comes in with a much higher bid late in the process i think dan snyder we know what he's like he'll he'll take it we're discussing the sale of the commanders with sports business insider daniel kaplan of the athletic as i'm sure you know uh there is a belief that dan snyder does not want to sell the commanders to jeff bezos given his ownership of the washington post with which dan has feuded for years and which broke the news of and has done extensive reporting on the team's workplace misconduct scandal what do you think would dan sell the team to jeff i think he would um but i think it would have to be a hot he'd have to be the high bidder by you know a significant margin uh, i we know we know the kind of person dan is and I don't think there's any doubt that he he doesn't like the Washington Post. He's viewed the Washington Post as having, you know, basically a holy jihad against him, uh, an agenda against him. So uh, I, 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 I don't think that's wrong that he doesn't want to sell to, to the Washington Post owner. But I also think that if he gets, a, you know, Bezos puts in a bid for three, four hundred million more, I mean, Dan, Dan's not stupid. He's going to take that. Do you think that it's safe to say that the NFL wants Jeff Bezos to buy the Commanders? I think. Look, they they, they want the the highest bidder who who's financially capable. Um, you know that doesn't have ethical issues. I would say uh, to be to, to be the buyer. Uh, they they would be happy with Josh Harris. They would they would be happy with the Clear Lake. Uh, People who are who are bidding, I'm sure, assuming the the, the financials are there, and they would be happy with Bezos. Um, look, they know Bezos through the Amazon deal. Uh, he 
clearly has all the money in the world. They'd be fine with Bezos. They'd be fine, they'd be fine with Josh Harris. The timeline for the sale of the commanders being completed that has come up the most is the sale being officially voted on by NFL owners at the league's annual league meeting, which will take place March 26th through the 29th. Uh, That, of course, is not that far away. Is that realistic, in your opinion, the sale of the team being finalized at that league meeting? Look, it it could it could be uh, that that would be an accelerated time time frame. Uh, usually, it takes a little longer than that, and there's no reason it has to be done at the annual meeting. There's a there's a spring meeting in May when the owners approved the sale of the Denver Broncos uh, in August of last year. They called the special meeting in Minneapolis. Uh, they, they got some other meeting uh, agenda items done at that meeting, but the pri- primary reason it was called it was it was an unscheduled meeting was to approve the new owners of the Denver Broncos. So there's nothing that that precludes the owners from doing that again this year. So there's nothing holy about the annual meeting in, Mar- in March. Um, in fact, that would be an, as I said, an accelerated timeline. So I'm not I'm not certain that's when it's going to take place. A big fear among many people listening to this is that Dan Snyder ultimately isn't going to sell the commanders, that if he doesn't get at least $7 billion for the team, then he just won't sell the team. We know the deal with Dan. He is impulsive. He is unpredictable. Do you think that Dan not selling the team is a distinct possibility, or are we too far down the road at this point for him not to sell the team? Your guess is as good as mine. I talk to people about this frequently, and uh, people who know him, people who don't know him, uh, they they all don't know. They don't know the answer to this question. Uh, and it's look, we just had a situation in sports M and A. The uh, the Angels, the, 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 the I don't know what they called it anymore, the Angels of L A. or whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever, they're, whatever they're called. The ones the, the ones that play an hour in the south of L A. <laughs> um, they were on the market. Uh, they hired an investment bank. The investment bank had had five serious buyers. They were preparing a, a first round of bids, and the owner just only called up the investment bank and said, "I've changed my mind. I don't want to put. I don't want to sell the team." The team got pulled off the market. So there's nothing that prevents Dan Snyder from pulling the team off the market at this point. The question is, how does the NFL and the other NFL owners react to that? Given that the reason it was put up for sale in the first place, the team is all the scandals and the pressures and the disgruntlement dis- among the ownership. So I don't know if at this point he can turn back. If how, how NFL ownership would view that, I think there's a big feeling of relief that the team may be sold. That the owners and the league and the commissioner are just tired of dealing with the situation. I also think it's interesting that these investigations that the NFL has undertaken into the Various accusations against Snyder and the team. That there, you know, these were pretty. Some of them were pretty straightforward, straightforward investigations. They were being conducted by the former SEC chairwoman Mary Jo White, and that they're still not done. And I, I, I this is just speculation, but the league may be hanging uh, hang those over his head to say, if you don't sell the team, we're going to release these findings, and maybe the findings aren't so favorable to him. So I wonder if that's sort of an, a, an unspoken threat to Snyder to not back out. I think that that makes a lot of sense. We have been hearing nothing 
about the Mary Jo White investigation. I mean, it's funny that we're talking. It was you who last April 4th broke the news that former Redskins employee Jason Friedman was the whistleblower in the team's financial scandal. So you have the workplace misconduct scandal, the financial scandal. These scandals have seemingly disappeared. Uh, But to your point, it may well be that these scandals are being held over, Dan Snyder, by the NFL. Well, and the other the other thing she's looking at is the allegation that he, you know, he harassed. Uh, I forget her name, but the the former cheerleader who yeah. testified, Tiffany before, Johnston, yeah, Tiffany Johnston, who testified before Congress. I mean, and I, I don't want to say that it's an easy job to investigate something like that, but that was that the investigation was launched what 10, 10 11 months ago. Yeah, uh, how. How much time do you need to interview her, interview the alleged witnesses, and and track down various evidence? It, it shouldn't take this long. So, it strongly suggests to me, at least, that they're they're holding that out over them. One more for you. We on Thursday had reports from multiple outlets, essentially categorizing the sale of the commanders as not going well from a standpoint of Dan Snyder getting at least the $7 billion that he wants for the team. Would you categorize the sale of the team as not going well right now? Well, I think I've seen reports that said he's only getting bids in the low $6 billion. So, I mean, I, I would um, I would think he, $6 billion would be an extraordinary figure for uh, any for an NFL team. The, the $4.6 billion figure for the Denver Broncos, which sold in August, is the most by far the most ever for a professional sports team. I, I, I think what you're seeing here is there's only so many individuals, so many people who can afford these teams at this level. And the NFL has very conservative ownership rules. There's been a lot of discussion that the NFL is going to have to allow uh, fund, uh, financial funds into the ownership structure. The other leagues have recently allowed this. The NFL hasn't. In fact, I I was tracking down a story when I was reporting the Josh Harris story that he was looking at a way to involve a financial fund in his ownership structure. I don't think he can do that under current NFL rules, but if indeed there are not enough buyers to get the price up over $7 billion in this this process, I, I would expect the NFL to take a second look at their, their rules on ownership because uh, those rules were designed when teams were selling for a billion, two billion, or, or less. I mean, when you get up to five, six, seven billion dollars, there's not a lot. I mean, uh, outside of people like Jeff Bezos and the Walton family that bought the Broncos, there aren't a lot of people who can afford that. Interesting. Great perspective on the commander's sale with sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic. Daniel, thanks a lot and all the best. All right, you too. All right. Hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Daniel Kaplan. Uh, If you have like 20 seconds, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast. You on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. You can pass judgment on this podcast. Uh, Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you on Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review, does that have to be long? Uh, It can be just a sentence or two. Uh, But the ratings and the reviews do help us out a lot. So thank you very much for doing them. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Well, the Capitals finally have played a game in this month of February. Uh, the Caps' last game had been on January 31st, as this season their bye week immediately followed the NHL All-Star break. But the Caps over the weekend had two games, and uh, the results were rather mixed. Uh, Saturday afternoon, a 2-1 win at the NHL-leading Boston Bruins. you love that. But Sunday afternoon, a 4-1 loss to the lowly San Jose Sharks at Capital One Arena. The Sharks, even with this win, have the fourth fewest points in the Western Conference. So the Caps now are 28-21-6. and six. They are atop the Eastern Conference's wildcard standing, 62 points, one point ahead of the Pittsburgh Penguins. But this past weekend perfectly captured the uh, up-and-down season that the Caps are having. We talked about that on Friday's show, episode 505 with Caps insider Tarek El-Bashir of The Athletic. Tarek was great. If you're a Caps fan, make sure that you check out our conversation if you haven't already. Now, the Caps still are without a number of key players due to injury. Defenseman John Carlson and forwards Tom Wilson, Nick Dowd, Connor Brown, and Carl Haglin all remain out due to injury. And winger Anthony Mantha did not play on Sunday afternoon due to illness. Uh, Darcy Kemper was a Caps starting goaltender in that win at the Bruins. Uh, He played in a game for the first time since the Caps 5-1 loss at the Toronto Maple Leafs all the way back on January 29th. Uh, Kemper in that game stopped just 16 of the 20 shots on goal that he faced. He got pulled in the second period of a game for the second time in four games, but Kemper in this win at the Bruins was terrific. He stopped 27 of the 28 shots on goal that he faced. Charlie Lindgren was the cap starting goaltender in the loss to the Sharks. Uh, He stopped 29 of the 32 shots on goal that he faced. Uh, Lindgren, per natural stat trick, did stop 13 of the 14 high danger shots on goal that he faced, but he also gave up a goal on a medium danger shot on goal and gave up a goal on a low danger shot on goal. The Caps on Sunday afternoon got walloped in the puck possession battle. The Caps, per natural stat trick, had 38 five-on-five shot attempts to the Sharks' 57, including just nine five-on-five high danger shot attempts to the Sharks' 16. The Caps uh, had just 21 shots on goal to the Sharks' 33. This was not a good performance by the Caps on uh, Super Bowl Sunday 
afternoon. Uh, center Evgeny Kuznetsov scored a second period even strand goal. He did leave the game due to getting hurt, but did come back into the game. It was good to see Kuzi score a goal. Uh, the Caps uh, need some more goals from Evgeny Kuznetsov. He, this season has been good in terms of assists, but uh, the Caps could use more goal scoring from Kuznetsov. He, in this regular season, uh, has just eight goals. And then there was winger Alex Ovechkin. A bad weekend for Ovi. A uh, not-so-great weekend for the grade eight. Uh, Ovechkin in the win at the Bruins on Saturday afternoon went pointless. He had just two shots on goal and just six total shot attempts, and he committed two third-period penalties. Uh, Although he did have a game-high six hits, the Caps uh, on Saturday afternoon out-hit the Bruins 37-21. Again, this was the Caps' first game this month, so the Caps came out uh, with energy. The Caps came out rather spry and out-hit the Bruins by 16 hits, but uh, Ovi in the loss to the Sharks on Sunday afternoon went pointless, had just one shot on goal and just four total shot attempts, and committed a first-period hooking minor. Alex Ovechkin over the weekend, three minors in two games. We're not used to seeing that. Uh, Q&A between Tarek El-Bashir and Caps head coach Peter Laviolette during his post-game press conference on Sunday afternoon. You don't want to use uh, rest as an excuse, but I mean, that, that wasn't even 24 hours between yeah. games for the league's oldest team. Is that just what you got? It happens to everybody. Like, everybody gets caught with the schedule. There's no excuse. We needed to be better tonight. We needed to play a better game. Uh, points are important, and uh, you know, we didn't do that. We'll address it. Yeah, good for Peter Laviolette for not using the schedule as an excuse. So the Caps on Sunday afternoon were just bad. Next up for the Caps, home to the Carolina Hurricanes, Tuesday night at 7. Well, this week is the final week before the NBA All-Star break. Uh, The Wizards this week have three games in four days with all of the games on the road. Monday night at the Golden State Warriors at 10. Tuesday night at the Portland Trailblazers at 10. Thursday night at the Minnesota Timberwolves at 8. And so the Wizards on Saturday night played their last home game until February 24th. And they, in this game on Saturday night, had one of the single greatest offensive halves that the franchise has ever had. Uh, the Wizards improved to 26-29 and 29 with a 127-113 win over the Indiana Pacers at Capital One Arena on Saturday night. Uh, the Wizards held a lead over the final three quarters, but the story of the game was what the Wizards did offensively in the first half. The Wizards in the first half scored 80 points. The Wizards in the first half shot 70 3.2% from the field. The Wizards in the first half went 9 of 17 on threes and 21 of 24 on twos. Uh, also went 11 of 13 on free throws. And how about this? The Wizards in the first half had 23 assists. 23 assists versus 7 turnovers. 23 assists. That can be an NBA team's total of assists for an entire game. The Wizards had that total in just the first half on Saturday night. Uh, Now, the Pacers are not a good defensive team, but still, I mean, this was an offensive clinic that our Wizards put on in the first half on Saturday night, and they did this while still being without Kyle Kuzma. Uh, He did not play for a third consecutive game due to a sprained left ankle that he suffered in the Wizards' 125-123 loss at the Brooklyn Nets the previous Saturday evening, February 4th. Uh, Also, no Will Barton for the Wizards. Uh, He did not play due to not being with the team. 
that was his official reason for being out, not with team, as it does appear as if Will Barton is done with the Wizards. Uh, ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski this past Thursday evening reported that the Wizards were working on a contract buyout with Barton. Uh, Monte Morris on Saturday night was back. He returned from a one-game absence caused by back tightness. 27 minutes, 19 seconds as a starter. He went 0-2 on threes, but 7 of 8 on twos, 3 of 3 on free throws. He finished with 17 points, 6 rebounds, and 4 assists versus 1 turnover. Eight Wizards each scored at least nine points. Bradley Beal led the way with 32 points. Uh, He in exactly 31 minutes as a starter had 32 points. Not bad. Uh, He went four or five on threes, nine of 13 on twos, and two of two on free throws. He finished with the 32 points, also had six assists and four rebounds. Did commit five turnovers, but Beal overall had a very nice game. Here was Wizards head coach Wes Unsell Jr. during his postgame press conference on Saturday night on Bradley Beal. Well, he's great. He was great. And honestly, he was great on both ends. Um, you know, he's he's really had two um, really good defensive games these last two nights. Um, and aside from scoring points and facilitating and doing all the other things, you know, he had a 10 assist night, you know, a couple nights ago. Um, he's, he's really locked in defensively. So a complete game. And he's playing with effort. Um, you know, I think it's, it's kind of helped steady the group because they know they're going to rely on him on both ends. Um, and they can rely on him to not only score the ball, but be a reliable uh, facilitator. And he's been playmaking, you know, possession after possession. It really opens things up for everyone. Yes, it does. Uh, also having a really good game for the Wizards on Saturday night was Chris Tapps Porzingis. Uh, the Zinger, 32 minutes, 16 seconds as a starter. One of three on threes, three of five on twos, eight of eight on free throws. He finished with 17 points, 10 rebounds, including four offensive boards and five assists versus no turnovers. So you look at this Wizards 2022-2023 regular season as we approach the All-Star break. A 10-7 and start, then 13 losses in 14 games, but since then, a record of 15 and 9. The overall record is not good, is not close enough to being good enough. 26 and 29. But, you know, the Wizards have been actually pretty good lately. It may not feel like it, but that is the truth. Look, I still don't trust this team. I don't know how you can. There, of course, is the perpetual bigger picture of this team's ceiling just not being very high, but fair is fair. The Wizards over the last two months have been pretty good. 15 wins in 24 games. Well, let's talk college basketball. We on Saturday had Maryland, Georgetown, Virginia, and Virginia Tech all playing. Three of the four teams won, including Maryland. Uh, the Terrapins improved to 17-8 and eight overall and 8-6 and six in the Big Ten with a 74-68 win over Penn State at Xfinity Center in College Park, Maryland on Saturday afternoon. The Terps won their 10th consecutive conference home game and improved to 13-1 and one at home this season, and the game was officially announced as a sellout. 17,950 fans in attendance at the Xbox for what was a red-out game. Believe it or not, this was the Terps' first home sellout since March 8, 2020, which, of course, was right before the COVID shutdowns. Uh, this was Terps head coach Kevin Willard during his post-game press conference on Saturday afternoon on his home court advantage. 
this building rocks, man. It, it's you know it's it's really really helped us. Uh, the students uh, are into it. They're loud. So I mean, you know, I've you know we've played Wisconsin, Purdue, Michigan State, Iowa, um, somebody else on the road, and every game, every place is packed. Like Michigan State was loud, Purdue's loud, Wisconsin's loud. Um, our building is loud. It's it's a great home court. You need it in this league because winning on this winning on the road in this conference is unlike anything I've I've experienced. Yeah, the Terps on Saturday afternoon began the game on an 18-6 run. Did blow that 12-point first half lead to where the game was tied at 26 late in the first half. Uh, We're tied with Penn State at 47 with a little more than 10 minutes left in the second half, but then went on a 17-5 run for a 12-point lead at 64-52. Terps did have a mixed game defensively. Terps allowed Penn State to go 12-26 on threes and 15-27 on twos, but the Terps did a great job of defending without fouling. They held Penn State to just four free throw attempts for the entire game. The Terps totaled 23 free throw attempts and outscored Penn State on free throws 18-2. Not bad. Uh, And the Terps generated 13 Penn State turnovers and finished with 17 points off turnovers to Penn State six. Uh, The Terps were solid offensively, six to 16 on threes, 19 to 31 on twos, 18 to 23 on free throws, and no Maryland player was better than Hakeem Hart. He had a great game, 39 minutes as a starter, 2 of 4 on threes, 6 of 6 on twos, 5 of 6 on free throws. He finished with 23 points, 5 rebounds, 4 assists versus 1 turnover, and 2 steals. Hart scored 13 of his 23 points over the final 8 minutes of the game. Uh, Here was Kevin Willard during his postgame press conference on Saturday afternoon on Hakeem Hart. He's a he's a tough matchup because I can put him in pick and rolls. Um, I kind of I put a new, I put a play in last week for him that I ran for Kadari Richmond last year at Seton Hall. That's just a empty side post up and just let him almost what Penn State does with Pickett. Um, so I mean it's I have a lot of confidence in him. So he he's just depending on pick and roll coverage or post coverage. I I can go either way and get him. You know use his height. Um, his strength, and he's a very good passer when he's down there. Yes, he is. Hakeem Hart has had some big assist games for Maryland this season. Uh, we, on Saturday afternoon, had another good performance from the Charlotte graduate student transfer, Jameer Young, a product of DeMatha Catholic High School in Hyattsville, Maryland. Uh, Young, 36 minutes as a starter. He went 2 of 4 on threes and 3 of 6 on twos. It did go just a 6 of 9 on free throws, but he finished with 18 points, 4 assists versus 1 turnover and 4 rebounds. Uh, we did have another mixed game for 6'9 sophomore Julian Reese. And again, we continue to harp on how he's doing because of the potential for this guy. Consensus four-star recruit from St. Francis Academy in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Reese on Saturday afternoon played for just 25 minutes as a starter. He went uh, just four of 10 from the field, all twos, and had no assists versus two turnovers. But he did go three of four on free throws. He finished with 11 points, five rebounds, and three blocks. Uh, Also, Dante Scott, 38 minutes as a starter, just one of five on threes, but also three of six on twos. He finished with nine points, 10 rebounds, and four assists versus two turnovers. Next up for Maryland, a big one, home to number one Purdue, Thursday evening at 6.30. And how about the Boilermakers on Super Bowl Sunday afternoon, number one Purdue lost at Northwestern, 64-58. 
Well, Georgetown has been playing a number of ranked teams lately. The Hoyas on Saturday afternoon played a team ranked in the Associated Press Top 25 for a third consecutive game, uh, and the Hoyas lost. Uh, Georgetown fell to 6-20 and overall and 1-14 and in the Big East with an 89-75 loss to number 10 Marquette at Capital One Arena on Saturday afternoon. Another depressing game if you're a Georgetown fan. The Hoyas never held a lead in the game. They trailed by at least 12 points for the entire second half. Uh, the Hoyas got worked defensively, allowed Marquette to score 89 points, go 15 of 31 on threes and 20 of 36 on twos, and finish with 24 assists. Uh, the Hoyas did hold Marquette to just seven free throw attempts for the entire game and did generate 14 Marquette turnovers, but the Hoyas were not good enough offensively. They were just so-so offensively, and that was not good enough in this game. Hoyas went 6-16 on threes, just a 20-42 on twos, and just 17-23 on free throws. The Hoyas totaled 18 assists, that's not bad, uh, but also had 16 turnovers. Uh, Georgetown's leading scorer was Arizona State transfer Jay Heath. Uh, 35 minutes as a starter, just two of seven on threes, and he committed three turnovers, but he also went five and nine on twos and two of two on free throws. He finished with 18 points, four rebounds, and two assists. Two Hoya starters had very rough games in terms of shooting. Talking about Primo Spears and Brandon Murray. Duquesne transfer Primo Spears, 37 minutes as a starter, just a two of 12 from the field, all twos, and he committed four turnovers. He did go four of four on free throws. He finished with eight points, uh, also had eight assists. Uh, LSU transfer Brandon Murray, 29 minutes as a starter, just one of four on threes and just two of six on twos. He finished with seven points, but did also have six assists versus one turnover, two steals, and two rebounds. A big bright spot for the Hoyas was 6'10 UConn transfer, a cook, a cook. Uh, he was cooking on Saturday afternoon. A cook, a cook, just a 26 minutes as a starter, and yet he finished with 10 points, five blocks, and four rebounds. Yeah, five blocks in a mere 26 minutes of playing time. He went one of two on threes, three of four on twos, and one of one on free throws. He did have no assists versus two turnovers. And then there was what went on with Georgetown's other key big, Maryland transfer Kudis Wahab. Uh, he did not play in the game due to what Hoyas head coach Patrick Ewing during his postgame press conference called, quote, personal family issues, end quote. Now, there were rumors during the game that Kudis had quit the team and left the school. We don't know those things to be true, but remember with Kudis Wahab, he was at Georgetown, then he transferred to Maryland, and then he transferred back to Georgetown. So there has been uh, some chaos in his collegiate career. We certainly hope the, that he's doing all right. Next up for Georgetown at Seton Hall on Tuesday evening at 6. How about what went down with Wahoo on Saturday. Number eight, Virginia improved to 19 and four overall and 11 and three in the ACC with a wild 69 62 overtime win over Duke at John Paul Jones Arena in Charlottesville, Virginia on Saturday. The JPJ was a hopping on Saturday, uh, but the JPJ was not without controversy. So the Cavaliers now have won nine of their last 10 games, but this game had controversy. The game was tied at 58 with 1.2 seconds left in regulation. Duke's Kyle Filipowski received an inbounds pass on a backdoor cut, and after an official's review, it was determined that Filipowski's attempt at a driving dunk was blocked by UVA's Reese Beekman as time expired in regulation. But the ACC late night on Saturday night, quote, announced an incorrect 
adjudication of the playing rules. A foul was called on Virginia's Ryan Dunn during a shot attempt by Duke's Kyle Filipowski as time expired. Upon the official's review of the play, it was determined that the foul committed occurred after the clock reached 0.0. However, the play should have resulted in two free throws for Duke. Per Rule 5, Section 7, Article 3C of the NCAA rulebook, while a foul occurred after expiration of play, the ball was still in flight. Thus, the student-athlete should have been granted two free-throw attempts, end quote. And of course, uh, had Filipowski been granted the two free-throw attempts and made just one of the free-throw attempts, at least just one, uh, Duke would have won the game. Now, this whole thing was very confusing because if you watched the game or at least watched the play, the foul pretty clearly did not occur after time expired in regulation. The foul occurred before time expired in regulation. Bottom line, yes, Duke got screwed by the officiating. There is a statement that you have not heard often over the years. Duke got screwed by the officiating. Shoe meet the other foot. Imagine that. Duke (laughs) got screwed by the officiating. And here is my official reaction to Duke getting screwed by the officiating. (laughs) Yes, thank you very much. (laughs) Ha ha. That is my official reaction to Duke getting screwed by the officiating. Ha ha. Uh, what happened at the end of regulation got the bulk of the attention, but there was a lot more to this game than just what happened at the end of regulation. So the Cavs, oh, by the way, won the overtime 11-4. That had nothing to do with what happened at the end of regulation. Uh, the Cavs defense in this game, quite good. The Cavs generated 22 Duke turnovers, finished with 20 points off turnovers to Duke's eight. Uh, the Cavs had 10 steals in the game. And the Cavs held Duke seven-foot freshman center Kyle Filipowski, one of the best players in the nation, scoreless. Filipowski in 29 minutes, 51 seconds as a starter, 0 of 1 on threes, 0 of 5 on twos, and 0 of 2 on free throws. And he had one assist versus five turnovers. And he had just six rebounds. Understand, Kyle Filipowski came into this game averaging a team-best 15.5 points per game and a team-best 9.3 rebounds per game. This was UVA head coach Tony Bennett during his postgame press conference on Saturday evening on the job that his team did on Kyle Filipowski. And I'm going to play the entire exchange uh, with Virginia and Virginia Tech insider Mike Barber of Richmond.com because Tony Bennett didn't know that UVA had held Filipowski scoreless. Tony, Kyle Filipowski has been probably the most consistent maybe player in the league, if not freshman. You guys held him without a point. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> that was our reaction, too. Uh, what, what, what did you guys do so well against him? Yeah, I mean, you know, threw a, a trap at him at times and just had guys try to wall him up, stay in front. And whenever you play against good players and, you know, pick your poison, but they have to earn. And I don't think he got too many clean looks. I don't even know if he got a, a, a rhythm three. Well, he only took one. But, um, you know, he just tried to play as hard as we can and, and uh, made him earn his looks. Uh, and they got some other stuff, and I think they used him well when he wasn't, you know, to bait us out, and they got in the lane. Um, points in the paint, well, 24, but um, he's young. I mean, that inexperience shows at times that he's good, really good, and, and he plays hard, which I respect. 
Yeah, tremendous job by the Wahoos on Kyle Filipowski. Now, I mentioned him having just six rebounds. Rebounding actually was a problem for the Hoos on Saturday. They won despite getting out-rebounded 39-24, including having five offensive rebounds to Duke's nine and just two second-chance points to Duke's 16. Also, the Hoos won despite going just four of 14 on threes and a horrendous nine of 22 on free throws. Yeah, the Hoos on Saturday, 9 of 22 on free throws, but the Hoos did go 24 of 40 on twos and did outscore Duke in the paint 42-24. Here was Tony Bennett during his postgame press conference on Saturday evening on the Hoos going 9 of 22 on free throws. Ironically, we do a little free throw challenge game at the end of a lot of practices, and, and yesterday was the first time all year that we've every guy made every free throw. So I told him after the game, I said, "Don't do that anymore. Just miss one or two, and because uh, we everyone hit their free throws in a pressure situation or a challenge situation." But uh, yeah, that was that was tough. You know, you, you keep working on it, but I think our defense did and uh, did hold us in there while we were covering, and there were some big plays. And, and I do want to say, I, I thought John did a good job having his team ready. Um, he's a good young coach. You can see it. And he got his team to respond, and they ran tricky stuff, and it was hard for us. Um, and, you know, when you have a young team like he does, it, of course they're talented, but that's a lot, and he's, he's putting the pieces together well. But I thought our guys stepped up. Armand played a terrific game, and he had a broken nose or a two days ago in practice or a a crack nose. Uh, and so I thought he showed some great toughness uh, to respond as he did. Yeah, so how about that reveal from Tony Bennett on Armand Franklin? The dude had an injured nose and yet still did as he did on Saturday. And what he did, uh, Armand Franklin, 37 minutes, 16 seconds as a starter, three of five on threes, six of eight on twos. He did go just to two of five on free throws, but he finished with 23 points and three rebounds. Uh, some other heroes for the Who's, uh, Kihei Clark, 36 minutes, 56 seconds as a starter, one of three on threes, six of seven on twos. Did go just one of three on free throws, but he finished with 16 points and five assists versus one turnover. Uh, 6'8", Ohio graduate student transfer, Ben Vanderplas, 30 minutes, 24 seconds as a starter, 0 of 2 on threes, a woeful 5 of 11 on free throws. But Vanderplas also went 4 of 5 on twos, and he finished with 11 points, 4 rebounds, 4 steals, 2 assists versus 1 turnover, and a game-best plus-minus rating of plus 20. And Reese Beekman, uh, he was Virginia's Iron Man. He played for a team high 40 minutes, 54 seconds, as a starter. Now, he did not shoot well. Uh, he went 0-1 on threes and a terrible 2 of 10 on twos. He finished with just four points, but he also had seven assists versus no turnovers, six rebounds, and three steals. Reese Beekman does so many things for UVA. Uh, next up for Virginia at Louisville, Wednesday night at 7, and also winning on Saturday was Virginia Tech. The Hokies improved to 15-10 and 10 overall and 5-9 and nine in the ACC with a 93-87 win at Notre Dame on Saturday afternoon. Now, Notre Dame is not good, uh, and with this loss, fell to just a 2-12 and 12 in the ACC, and so that Tech had to battle to win this game was disappointing, but Tech did win the game, and in fact, the Hokies notched their first road win of the season, if you could believe that. Uh, Tech had one of its best offensive games of the season, 93 points, 9 to 21 on threes, 23 of 35 on twos, 20 of 25 on free throws, 19 assists 
versus a mere five turnovers. So the problem was that Tech gave up a lot to Notre Dame. The Hokies allowed Notre Dame to score 87 points and go 13-30 on threes and 21-32 on twos, although the Hokies did hold Notre Dame to just a seven free throw attempts for the entire game. Tech outscored Notre Dame in terms of free throw points at 26, but the Hokies had no answer for Notre Dame's 6'10 graduate student, Nate Leshesky. Uh, this is Nate Leshesky's fifth season playing for Notre Dame. He, in 36 minutes as a starter, went 6 of 9 on threes, 6 of 8 on twos, and 3 of 4 on free throws. He finished with 33 points and 8 rebounds. However, also scoring 33 points in this game was another grad student, Wright State graduate student transfer Grant Basile of Virginia Tech. In fact, he scored 33 points for a second consecutive game, and he did this in just 26 minutes as a starter. He went 3 of 7 on threes, 10 of 12 on twos, and 4 of 4 on free throws. He finished with 33 points and 7 rebounds. What a job by Grant Basile. Uh, also, Justin Mutz nearly had a triple-double. 39 minutes as a starter, uh, 2 of 5 on threes, 5 of 11 on twos. He did go just to 3 of 7 on free throws, so he accounted for 4 of Tech's 5 missed free throw attempts, but Mutz finished with 19 points, 9 assists versus 3 turnovers, and 8 rebounds. Next up for Virginia Tech at Georgia Tech, Wednesday night at 7. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday's show, episode 507. We'll have plenty for you on the Commanders. Also, I'll talk Wizards, the Wizard at the Golden State Warriors, Monday night at 10. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Everyone's waiting to see what happens in Washington. And there, there was some interest from some potential ownership groups that are going to be bidding on, that currently a bid on that team, that were getting ahead of the game saying, wow. hey, you know, if we get awarded this team, would you? And, and so there were a lot of different things at play. That's interesting. Right? So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 